Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast, November 15th, Lord's Day Service. None of us needs to hear more empty, out-of-context, hallmark card Bible verses and meaningless Christianese from one another. What we need is brothers and sisters who faithfully practice the godly discipline of Christian exhortation to one another that these passages require us. The exhortation this week is by Larson Hicks. The sermon is by Matt Carpenter. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And also to you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Lord, if your creation declares your glory, the heavens, the mountains, even the insects, then how can we who are made in your image remain silent? Today, Lord, we will not be silent. We will declare your glory with our hearts lifted up to you, and we ask that you receive it joyfully because we offer it up to you in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. And amen. Amen. Our exhortation this morning comes from two passages in Hebrews. The first is Hebrews 10, 23-25, which says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And the other passage is also in Hebrews, it's in chapter 3, it's verse 12 and, verses 12 and 13. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Our exhortation today is, is actually a little dangerous. It's the kind of exhortation that I think could probably get me in trouble, which is why I didn't tell any of the guys about it beforehand. As you know, we've been trying to teach about Christianity 101, and I'd say that this exhortation this morning is probably more like Christianity 201. Our exhortation today, and that's because our exhortation today is about exhorting one another. I'm exhorting you to exhort one another. What does this mean? Well, to start with, a lie that we at Trinity Reformed Church are committed to laboring towards dispelling is the lie that the church, that the Christian religion is primarily an individual religion. One in which your membership and participation in a particular body of believers is kind of irrelevant, so long as you're personally saved. This is a lie, and it's a scheme of the devil to separate the sheep in the flock from, from each other and ultimately from the shepherd himself. There's an ancient Latin phrase about this. You classical Christian students 
can try to guess its meaning. The, the Latin phrase is extra ecclesia nulla salus. It's attributed to one of the church fathers in the second century named Cyprian. It means outside the church, there is no salvation. If it sounds a little Catholic, we can, we can quote Calvin here who said, quote, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. If you don't like Calvin, let's try Luther. I like, I like this quote from Luther. Therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ and his faith were if we, were not to, if we did not know where his believers are? And he who would know anything of Christ must not trust himself nor build a bridge to heaven by his own reason, but he must go to the church, attend and ask her. Now the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. One must hold to them and see how they believe, live and teach. They surely have Christ in their midst. For outside of the Christian church, there is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. The point that I want to make this morning in this exhortation is that Christianity is a team sport. We are baptized into Christ and his body, the church. The first passage we considered was from Hebrews 10, which tells us to hold fast to the confession of our hope, to consider one another in in order to stir up love and good works by, one, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves, and two, by exhorting one another. Regularly assembling and also exhorting one another, those two things go together. They go hand in hand. So what does exhorting mean here? Well, the Greek word in both of these passages might sound familiar to some of you. It's the word parakalite. It's the verb form of the name that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit when he says, quote, But the Helper, Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The word for Helper is Parakletos, also translated as Advocate or Comforter. Parakletos is the noun for the verb Paraklete the noun form of that verb, which is translated to exhort here in, these two, in both of these Hebrew passages, these passages from Hebrew. Rather. So then, when we're being instructed to exhort one another in Hebrews to parakalite one another, we are being instructed to daily do the work of the Holy Spirit in one another's lives, exhorting, encouraging, advocating, comforting, convicting of sin, and helping in the faith. We're, we're being told, in essence, to have one another's backs. I want to encourage you, in light of he Hebrews, to reconsider the purpose of fellowship, even here at church. Yes, it should be pleasant. There's no, no, there's nothing wrong with talking about sports, or about the weather, or about Babylon B. But ultimately, if we're obeying this exhortation, these two exhortations from Hebrews, our fellowship with one another needs to be helpful. It should stir up love and good works. I want to encourage you, in the light of Hebrews, excuse me, um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal that we do this. The danger that Hebrews presents to us is that if we neglect the vital work of continually exhorting one, one another, then we might develop, quote, an evil heart of unbelief 
and depart from the living God. It's a stern warning and should get our attention. And so how do we start doing these things? Here are a couple quick suggestions. One, attend worship regularly. Be exhorted by God and receive it with a broken and contrite heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Be here in church and be ready to receive God's exhortation. Two, gather together with believers frequently. Get together with other members of the body so often that you will actually know how to exhort your brothers and sisters. Are they struggling in sin? Are they struggling with depression? Do they need encouragement through a hard season? Do they need help disciplining their children or communicating with their spouse? We can't exhort one another if we don't know one another. We can't expect to be an effective helper to one another if we don't know what one another's needs are. And especially if we don't trust one another. You can't expect someone to take your advice if they don't know you're trustworthy and that you actually care about them. Getting together frequently enables you to put something in the bank with, with your brothers and sisters in Christ and with one another and, and develop a genuine relationship so that we can actually be helpful. The third way we can, we can pursue this is to speak carefully and with wisdom. Scripture is chocked full, if you're not, if you're not aware, Scripture is chocked full with warnings against careless words. My favorite comes from James, where James calls the tongue a fire of world, a, a, a fire, a world of iniquity, defiling the whole body, set on fire by hell itself. <laughs> Unhelpful and careless words come in many forms. On the one hand, you have the person who's popping off to exhort someone in something they're really actually clueless about. If you feel led to encourage someone uh, enough, if you feel led to encourage or to exhort someone, then you should. It's generally a good idea to make sure that you've thought about that thing, that you've prayed about that thing, that's something you've, you've even studied, which is also an exhortation to, to, to pray and to study and to be ready for those sorts of things. Um, and also, before you exhort someone um, with, with some sort of hard word, perhaps, be sure to check your own heart. Um, take the plank, make sure you've removed the plank from your own eye before you take the uh, speck out of someone else's. On the other hand, there's another kind of careless word, um, and, and this is the biblical-sounding encouragement that is really just empty and confusing. None of us needs to hear more empty, out-of-context, hallmark card Bible verses and meaningless Christianese from one another. What we need is brothers and sisters who faithfully practice the godly discipline of Christian exhortation to one another that these passages require of us. And so, the exhortation is that there should not be a day that passes when you are not exhorting brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews says, while it is called today, I'll put it another, another way, on any day that ends in Y, exhort one another, lest any be of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Let's prepare our hearts for confession as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Lord, you have saved us into the church and called us to the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of faithful exhorting of 
one another. And yet, Lord, we would rather avoid one another, remain isolated and alone, and we shrink back from ever speaking any truth to any, anyone other's life. Forgive us this great sin, Lord. Father, we neglect this work because all too often our hearts are hardened against receiving any exhortation or conviction from your Holy Spirit or from others. We neglect this work because we're lazy and we are prideful. Forgive us, Lord. We know, Lord, that if we regard iniquity in our own hearts, that you will not hear our prayers, and so we silently confess our individual sins to you now. And Selah. We have confessed our sin to you and ask for your forgiveness in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And amen. 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 Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have, done, you have also done all our works in us. Brothers and scriptures, excuse me, brothers and sisters, <laughs> scripture tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so on the basis of God's promise, I declare to you now, your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. God. You've confessed your sin to the Lord, now let us together confess our faith. Christian, what do you believe? Please turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. Genesis, chapter 28. read verses 10 through 17. <coughs> now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went to Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to the heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come into your presence with reverence and godly fear. Make us to know you. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 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 It's difficult to put ourselves in the place of Jacob. Most of us don't know what it's like to run for your life from your brother who has sworn to kill you and your family. Mm -hmm. Thankfully so. 
He was running after he had deceived his brother Esau. And he, excuse me, he deceived his father Isaac and received the blessing that was intended for his brother Esau. On his run, he had a dream at this place. And in this dream, he saw what is translated in our Bibles as a ladder. But if you read much about ancient history, you will see that they didn't have the normal roofing ladders that we do today. No, this is better understood as steps. But even then, they didn't have normal staircases that would just take you from one level to another. The type of ladder that he is seeing is something like a temple. In ancient times, the place where men would go to meet God was up something like what we would consider a ziggurat, or we know more commonly, a pyramid. And you would ascend this all the way to the top, and then it was only the priests who could go to the top in most pagan religions, and once that priest had ascended, there he would meet God. Jacob saw this. He saw the angels. Don't just think of fat children with wings who were sent. No, no. These are the messengers, the heavenly hosts of God. Consider beings more powerful than anything you've ever seen in the statues of the Greek and the Roman gods. These were who were ascending up and down these steps. And Jacob then heard from God Himself. God reminded him of the promise to his grandfather Abraham and to Isaac. And he confirmed to Jacob, I will be with you. This promise is to you just like it was to your fathers. And I will not forsake my word. When Jacob awoke, he said, God was here. And I didn't know. How awesome. How dreadful. This place is. He wasn't saying this is a bad place. Usually when we think of dread, we think of a horror movie. No, that, this is the opposite of that. To be in God's presence is to forget about any other thing. It's to be so enraptured, so taken, that you don't think of anything else. You don't see anything else. All you can see, all you can think about, the only thing that fills your mind is the thought of God Himself. Most of us have rarely had an opportunity like Jacob did here. He was awed by Jehovah in his power and glory. And it was more than any man could comprehend. The closest thing we see to something like this in Scripture is later on in, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, this is another mountain that God's people, the disciples went up with Jesus. Or John, the apostle in the book of Revelation. He saw things that made him fall down on his face like a dead man. Jacob was not expecting this. He was just on the run. He was weary and isolated. Yet despite his weariness, God met him in this place. He doesn't just stop saying, this is where God dwells. In verse 17, and this is why I would say that we're not just talking about a set of stairs. He said, this is the house 
of God. This was a house. This is the gate of heaven. This is the place where man comes to meet God. Skip ahead several thousand years. Jesus, when He's calling the disciples in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus, He's talking to Nathaniel and He says, After this, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is laying claim to what we call Jacob's ladder. Or the temple that Jacob saw. Jesus is saying, I am the Holy Man. I am this temple. And it is by me that you will ascend to God Himself. That's still the case. It is not changed. It's only through Jesus Christ that we come to God. However, brothers and sisters, we have a significant problem. Try as we might in our best, to the best of our abilities, we cannot get to God. We are simple. To add a little bit of depth to this, we are filthy. We are burdened with sin. We are unclean. We have no right to come into the presence of God. We cannot ascend this holy mountain. Every day we sin, we break God's law, and then we justify ourselves. We explain all the reasons why we actually deserve to be in God's presence. Why? Because I believe in the doctrine of election. I'm a Calvinist. I have the Westminster Confession. We have the right worship. We've got the right doctrine. I know more about theology than you'll ever, than you'll ever know. You wouldn't say this. So we keep it like godly little Pharisees in our heads. You see, if we bring this junk into God's presence, we deserve to die. Like King Uzziah, who believed that he, because God had blessed him as a king, deserved to be able to take the incense and go into the temple himself. And God struck him with leprosy and he was removed from the people of God for the rest of his days. So there must be a sacrifice. We know the story here. We can fill in this blank. Jesus came as our sacrifice. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 But Christ has also suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. God prepared His people in the Old Covenant, He prepared them for the coming of the Messiah through a series of sacrifices. He ordained these sacrifices, all of which to show the need for Christ. The clearest statement of these sacrifices is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 9. Uh, it's it, it, it's a, a condensed version 
of the sacrifice, which further in the book of Leviticus and other passages, uh, these sacrifices are elaborated further. But we see several elements or several types of sacrifices. There is a sin offering, an ascension offering, a tribute offering, and a peace offering. All these point to Jesus. And when we gather to worship, that is why we follow a particular pattern in our worship today. In Leviticus 9, verses 5 and 6, we see here a call to come together, a call to worship. It says they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting. That's the place where men meet God. Priest would meet God, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. So they are called together into God's presence. In verse 15, we see a sin offering. It said, then he, that's referring to Aaron, brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and killed it and offered it for sin. Like the first one. Now first the priest had to sacrifice, uh, there was a sin offering for his own sin. Then this is the sin offering for the people. Before the people can come clearly and cleanly into the presence of God, there had to be a sacrifice on behalf of their sins. Man has never been able to go to God apart from a sacrifice. There must be blood shed. And here, the blood of this goat was shed. Next, there is the ascension offering. It's also called in some the whole burnt offering. Verse 16, And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. This burnt offering is when they would take the animal and they would burn it. They would roast it until there was nothing left. You say, that's a waste of good meat right there. Well, actually, no. The idea is that this animal is transformed into something that then rises as smoke. It rises up to God. It ascends to God. For us... When, when we gather, when, after we confess our sins to the Lord, we go into His presence. We ascend before Him in singing, in prayer, in reading God's Word, in confessing our faith. All of these things are what we do as we come before Him. This is our consecration, our giving ourselves before God. And then... There is a grain offering or a tribute offering. Verse 17, Then he brought the grain offering and took a handful of it and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. This was often uh, something like a loaf of bread. It, it symbolized the work of our hands. It, it was grain that was taken and was formed into bread. It was a gift. And then they, they would take this. It's the work of men's hands that is given to God, but it only comes after the sin, their sins have been, there's a, a, a sacrifice for sin, and they have ascended to God. So when we together give of our offerings, when the offerings are brought forth, that is our gift of a, just a small token 
of what God has given to us. Then we see a communion or a peace offering. Now this is, is thoroughly described in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 34. And I'm not going to read all of that. But this peace offering is when the person who offers the animal would then, it would, that meat would be cooked and the priest would eat some, the person would eat some, and it corresponds for us to the Eucharistic meal. When we eat together, we are eating with God. This is a meal of fellowship with God because it's only after our sins have been forgiven that we can have peace with God. We can enjoy the fellowship that's purchased for us. And then, back in Leviticus 9, the sacrifice, all, all these sacrifices end with the Aaronic benediction. Leviticus 9, 22 says that Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. So we receive God's blessing, His benediction, His, His the pronunciation that we now have received from God. So that's that's why we worship the way that we do. And, and from this point, we could go in many different directions. We could talk about the different aspects of worship, how worship is a tool for discipleship, how worship plays a role in our spiritual warfare. But I want to emphasize one thing with our worship. And that is, its main purpose is for us to come before and to know God. To be in His presence. Our ancient ancestors had an idea of something that we have lost. And that is something known as thin places. These are places where the physical world and the spiritual world meet. Most ancient worship, as I said earlier, took place on mountains because they believed that a mountain is where the gods and men could have communion. This is the, the same is true for, for, for Yahweh's people. Well, think of Abraham. Where did he go when he was going to sacrifice Isaac? He told his, his servants, the lad and I are going to go up and we're going to what? We're going to worship. That's the word he uses. We're going to go up. They were going up on this mountain to sacrifice and worship. Where did Moses meet God? It was on a mountain. God's people would come together and and the leaders would go in representation of the people to God and they would meet with God on a mountain. And even when Israel would go to worship at the temple, this is referred to as going up. We see that in places like 2 Kings 20, verse 5, and Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. That is called the mountain of the Lord. This is not just nice figurative language for walking a straight path. No, they are ascending. They are ascending to God. The temple was the place where God's people would meet with Him. 
It was not just a place where they would come together and do good things while God is way out there somewhere. Which is sometimes the way that we think of worship. It's a play, it's a time and a place where we come together and, and we, we talk and, and, and we, we sing and we hear prayers and, and, and all these things. So, so we do our, our duties, our responsibilities. We do our work and hopefully God who's, you know, He's out there somewhere and He will hear. Now, God would, He promised to be with His people. Not just in an abstract way like He's with every square inch of space in the cosmos. No, He promised to be with us in power and in glory when we are united together in worship. But again, we have little to no concept of thin places. We treat worship worship as a social practice, a time for a lesson in good behavior and the reinforcement of our value system, with maybe a few tweaks here or there. Can you say with Jacob, how awesome, how dreadful is this place? Because it is the very dwelling of God. When the saints are gathered together, this is the thinnest of thin places. We have it on God's authority that we are with Him, that He is with us. We come together and worship as He commands, yet He does not inhabit our worship because of our superior practices. It's not that we have everything exactly nailed down, and now we get to go teach the world all the problems in their worship. And if they would just worship like us, then God would favor them the way He's favored. No, 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 no. God the Father is here because Jesus Christ is the Son, is our ladder. He is our temple. The one who leads us to God. We have it on His authority that He is present. And that presence is exactly what we need. He created us to have fellowship with Him. To be united to Him. And it is in being with Him that we are conformed to His likeness. The language of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is very common. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or better translated, your reasonable worship. So be not conformed unto this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This language is Old Covenant sacrificial language. When we are called, they, they would bring a sacrifice. We often, and rightfully so, think of Jesus as our sacrifice, but Paul turns it around and says, you are now called to give yourself as a sacrifice. You present yourself to God as a sacrifice. This is part of our transformation. So you say, well, if that's the case, why is everyone who comes, why, why is everyone who worships not already 
you know, in a right relationship to God? Is it something that as long as we come together and we do everything, that all of, that everyone who worships will be transformed? No. Not at all. Why is it that some people change and others don't? Some people are conformed to Christ and others are not. The difference, according to Scripture, is faith. There is no work you can do to please God. We don't add to the already perfect work of Christ. Never have, never will. Your singing does not make God accept you more or less. Your prayers don't change how God views you. Your, your ability to take the right notes or to synthesize everything that you hear does not merit you anything. Just because you have every worshipful act nailed down, analyzed, understood, and propagated doesn't mean you're one bit better. The one thing that matters is faith. You can come to this place every time it's open, but without faith you cannot see or please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God, or he who draws near to God, must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Faith isn't a, is not about how good you feel. It's not about where your emotions are, how strong you're, you're feeling, or, or how much or how little you've sinned that day. Faith does not rest on you. It rests on the object who is Jesus Christ. So if you come trusting in Him, every promise that we say, every word that's spoken in this room belongs to you. And nothing or no one, no devil in hell, or no person living can take that away. What matters is, in whom are you trusting? Do you worship trusting yourself and your abilities, or do you worship trusting Jesus Christ? Do not go through the motions of this. It's deadly if you make it merely something that you just do. Come to God in faith. Confess, sing, pray, and receive God's gifts in faith. When you come to Him as Jacob did, God will meet you just as He met with Jacob. He will forgive you. He will strengthen you. And He will build you up. You can be in just the same predicament as Jacob. Weak and tired and isolated and saying, I have no hope. And God Himself promises when you come to Him in faith, He is with you. So come to God through Jesus Christ. Worship Him in faith. And He will keep you through all eternity. Pray. Our Father in God, we thank You for Your promises which are sure and steadfast. We receive those promises now and rejoice in hope. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Jesus said several things about this meal. Some of them, frankly, 
are more wonderful than we can actually imagine. He said, the one who eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life dwelling in him. How can this be? We often, in order to, to make it more comprehensible, we, we water down this teaching to a soggy metaphor and make it something that only happens in our minds. But that would be wrong. It's false. Every person who partakes of the body and the blood of Christ in faith has eternal life. No questions. Not your abilities. Not your gifts. You protect. Trusting. So if you have been baptized in the triune name of God and you are not under the discipline of a church, come to Christ. Behold, bless the Lord, all the servants of the Lord, through my nights and in the house of the you enjoyed the sermon. If you're interested in following us, visit our website at www.trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.